Chapter 18 of Sentimental Education. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by D. Cat in Osaka, Japan. Sentimental Education by Gustave Flaubert. Chapter 18 An Auction. Twelve thousand francs should be procured, or, if not, he would see Madame Arnaud no more, and until now there had lingered in his breast an unconquerable hope. Did she not, as it were, constitute the very substance of his heart, the very basis of his life? For some minutes he went staggering along the footpath, his mind tortured with anxiety, and nevertheless gladdened by the thought that he was no longer by the other side. Where was he to get the money? Frederick was well aware from his own experience how hard it was to obtain it immediately, no matter at what cost. There was only one person who could help him in the matter, Madame Dembreuse. She always kept a good supply of banknotes in her escritoire. He called at her house, and in an unblushing fashion, "'Have you twelve thousand francs to lend me?' "'What for?' That was another person's secret. She wanted to know who this person was." He would not give way on this point. They were equally determined not to yield. Finally, she declared that she would give nothing until she knew for what purpose it was wanted. Frederick's face became very flushed, and he stated that one of his comrades had committed a theft. It was necessary to replace the sum this very day. Let me know his name, his name. Come, what's his name? Dussaudier. And he threw himself on his knees, imploring of her to say nothing about it. "'What idea have you got into your head about me?' Madame Dambrouze replied. "'One would imagine that you were the guilty party yourself. "'Pray, have done with your tragic airs. "'Hold on, here's the money, and much good may it do him.' "'He hurried off to see Arnaud. "'That worthy merchant was not in his shop, "'but he was still residing in the Rue de Paradis, "'for he had two domiciles. "'In the Rue de Paradis, the porter said that Monsieur Arnaud had been away since the evening before. As for Madame, he ventured to say nothing, and Frederick, having rushed like an arrow up the stairs, laid his ear against the keyhole. At length, the door was opened. Madame had gone out with Monsieur. The servant could not say when they would be back. Her wages had been paid, and she was leaving herself. Suddenly, he heard the door creaking. But is there anyone in the room? Oh, no, Monsieur, it is the wind. Thereupon, he withdrew. There was something inexplicable in such a rapid disappearance. Riegenbach, being Mignot's intimate friend, could perhaps enlighten him. And Frederick got himself driven to that gentleman's house at Montmartre, in the Rue L'Empereur. Attached to the house, there was a small garden shut in by a grating which was stopped up with iron plates. Three steps before the hall door set off the white front and a person passing along the footpath could see the two rooms on the ground floor, the first of which was a parlor with ladies' dresses lying on the furniture on every side, and the second, the workshop in which Madame Riegenbach's female assistants were accustomed to sit. They were all convinced that Monsieur had important occupations, distinguished connections, that he was a man altogether beyond comparison. When he was passing through the lobby with his hat cocked up at the sides, his long grave face, and his green frock coat, the girls stopped in the midst of their work. Besides, he never failed to address to them a few words of encouragement, 
some observation which showed his ceremonious courtesy, and afterwards, in their own homes, they felt unhappy at not having been able to preserve him as their ideal. No one, however, was so devoted to him as Madame Riegenbach, an intelligent little woman who maintained him by her handicraft. As soon as Monsieur Moreau had given his name, she came out quickly to meet him, knowing through the servants what his relations were with Madame d'Ambreuse. Her husband would be back in a moment, and Frederick, while he followed her, admired the appearance of the house and the profusion of oilcloth that was displayed in it. Then he waited a few minutes in a kind of office into which the citizen was in the habit of retiring, in order to be alone with his thoughts. When they met, Riegenbach's manner was less cranky than usual. He related Arnaud's recent history. The ex-manufacturer of earthenware had excited the vanity of Mignot, a patriot who owned a hundred shares in the Cicle, by professing to show that it would be necessary from the democratic standpoint to change the management and the editorship of the newspaper. And under the pretext of making his views prevail in the next meeting of shareholders, he had given the other fifty shares, telling him that he could pass them on to reliable friends who would back up his vote. Mignot would have no personal responsibility and need not annoy himself about anyone. Then, when he had achieved success, he would be able to secure a good place in the administration of at least from five to six thousand francs. The shares had been delivered, but Arnaud had at once sold them, and with the money had entered into partnership with a dealer in religious articles. Thereupon came complaints from Mignot, to which Arnaud sent evasive answers. At last the patriot had threatened to bring against him a charge of cheating if he did not restore his share certificates or pay an equivalent sum, 50,000 francs. Frederick's face wore a look of despondency. This is not the whole of it, said the citizen. Mignot, who is an honest fellow, has reduced his claim to one-fourth. New promises on the part of the other, and, of course, new dodges. In short, on the morning of the day before yesterday, Mignot sent him a written application to pay up, within twenty-four hours, twelve thousand francs, without prejudice to the balance. But I have the amount, said Frederick. The citizen slowly turned round. Humbug! "'Excuse me, I have the money in my pocket. I brought it with me.' "'How you do go at it. By Jove, you do. However, tis too late now. The complaint has been lodged, and Arnaud is gone.' "'Alone?' "'No, along with his wife. They were seen at the Havre Terminus.' Frederick grew exceedingly pale. Madame Riegenbach thought he was going to faint. He regained his self-possession with an effort— and had even sufficient presence of mind to ask two or three questions about the occurrence. Riegenbach was grieved at the affair, considering that it would injure the cause of democracy. Arnaud had always been lax in his conduct and disorderly in his life. A regular hare-brained fellow. He burned the candle at both ends. The petticoat has ruined him. Tis not himself that I pity, but his poor wife. For the citizen admired virtuous women, and had a great esteem for Madame Arnaud, she must have suffered a nice lot. Frederick felt grateful to him for his sympathy, and, as if Riegenbach had done him a service, pressed his hand effusively. "'Have you done all that's necessary in the matter?' was Rosanette's greeting to him when she saw him again. "'He had not been able to pluck up courage to do it,' he answered, and walked about the streets at random to divert his thoughts. At eight o'clock they passed into the dining-room, but they remained seated face to face in silence gave vent each to a deep sigh every now and then, and pushed away their plates. 
Frederick drank some brandy. He felt quite shattered, crushed, annihilated, no longer conscious of anything save a sensation of extreme fatigue. She went to look at the portrait. The red, the yellow, the green, and the indigo made glaring stains that jarred with each other, so that it looked a hideous thing, almost ridiculous. Besides, the dead child was now unrecognizable. The purple hue of his lips made the whiteness of his skin more remarkable. His nostrils were more drawn than before, his eyes more hollow, and his head rested on a pillow of blue taffeta, surrounded by petals of camellias, autumn roses, and violets. This was an idea suggested by the chambermaid, and both of them had thus with pious care arranged the little corpse. The mantelpiece, covered with a cloth of guipure, supported silver gilt candlesticks with bunches of consecrated box in the spaces between them. At the corners, there were a pair of vases in which pastilles were burning. All these things, taken in conjunction with the cradle, presented the aspect of an altar, and Frederick recalled to mind the night when he had watched beside Madame d'Ambrouze's deathbed. Nearly every quarter of an hour, Rosanette drew aside the curtains in order to take a look at her child. She saw him in imagination, a few months hence, beginning to walk, then at college, in the middle of the recreation ground, playing a game of bass, then at twenty years a full-grown young man. And all these pictures conjured up by her brain created for her, as it were, the son she would have lost, had he only lived, the excess of her grief intensifying in her the maternal instinct. Frederick, sitting motionless in another armchair, was thinking of Madame Arnaud. No doubt she was at that moment in a train, with her face leaning against a carriage window, while she watched the country disappearing behind her in the direction of Paris, or else on the deck of a steamboat, as on the occasion when they first met. But this vessel carried her away into distant countries, from which she would never return. He next saw her in a room at an inn, with trunks covering the floor, the wallpaper hanging in shreds, and the door shaking in the wind. And after that, to what would she be compelled to turn? Would she have to become a schoolmistress or a lady's companion, or perhaps a chambermaid? She was exposed to all the vicissitudes of poverty. His utter ignorance as to what her fate might be tortured his mind. He ought either to have opposed her departure, or to have followed her. Was he not her real husband? And as the thought impressed himself on his consciousness that he would never meet her again, that it was all over forever, that she was lost to him beyond recall, he felt, so to speak, a rending of his entire being, and the tears that had been gathering since morning in his heart overflowed. Rosanette noticed the tears in his eyes. "'Ah, you are crying just like me. You are grieving too?' "'Yes, yes, I am.' He pressed her to his heart, and they both sobbed, locked in each other's arms. Madame d'Ambrouze was weeping too, as she lay face downwards on her bed, with her hands clasped over her head. Olympe Riekenbach, having come that evening to try on her first coloured gown after mourning, had told her about Frederick's visit, and even about the twelve thousand francs which he had ready to transfer to Monsieur Arnaud. So then, this money— the very money which he had got from her was intended to be used simply for the purpose of preventing the other from leaving Paris, for the purpose, in fact, of preserving a mistress. At first she broke into a violent rage, and determined to drive him from her door, as she would have driven a lackey. A copious flow of tears produced a soothing effect upon her. It was better to keep it all to herself and say nothing about it. Frederick brought her back the twelve thousand francs on the following day. 
She begged of him to keep the money, lest he might require it for his friend, and she asked a number of questions about this gentleman. Who, then, had tempted him to such a breach of trust? A woman, no doubt. Women drag you into every kind of crime. This bantering tone put Frederick out of countenance. He felt deep remorse for the calumny he had invented. He was reassured by the reflection that Madame d'Ambrouze could not be aware of the facts. All the same, she was very persistent about the subject, for two days later she again made inquiries about his young friend, and, after that, about another, de Laurier's. Is this young man trustworthy and intelligent? Frederick spoke highly of him. Ask him to call me one of these mornings. I want to consult him about a matter of business. She had found a roll of old papers in which there were some bills of Arnaud, which had been duly protested, and which had been signed by Madame Arnaud. It was about these very bills Frederick had called on Monsieur d'Ambrouze on one occasion while the latter was at breakfast, and although the capitalist had not sought to enforce repayment of this outstanding debt, he had not only got judgment on foot of them from the Tribunal of Commerce against Arnaud, but also against his wife, who knew nothing about the matter, as her husband had not thought fit to give her any information on the point. Here was a weapon placed in Madame d'Ambrouze's hands. She had no doubt about it. But her notary would advise her to take no step in the affair. She would have preferred to act through some obscure person, and she thought of that big fellow with such an impudent expression of face who had offered her his services. Frederick ingenuously performed this commission for her. The advocate was enchanted at the idea of having business relations with such an aristocratic lady. He hurried to Madame d'Ambrouze's house. She informed him that the inheritance belonged to her niece, a further reason for liquidating those debts which she should repay, her object being to overwhelm Montagnon's wife by a display of greater attention to the deceased affairs. De Laurier's guessed that there was some hidden design underlying all this. He reflected while he was examining the bills. Madame Arnaud's name, traced by her own hand, brought once more before his eyes her entire person, and the insult which he had received at her hands. Since vengeance was offered to him, why should he not snatch at it? He accordingly advised Madame d'Ambrouze to have the bad debts which went with the inheritance sold by auction. A man of straw, whose name would not be divulged, would buy them up, and would exercise the legal rights thus given him to realize them. He would take it on himself to provide a man to discharge this function. Towards the end of the month of November, Frederick, happening to pass through the street in which Madame Arnaud had lived, raised his eyes towards the windows of her house, and saw posted on the door a placard on which was printed in large letters, Sale of valuable furniture, consisting of kitchen utensils, body and table linen, shirts and chemises, lace, petticoats, trousers, French and Indian cashmeres, an Erard piano, two Renaissance oak chests, Venetian mirrors, Chinese and Japanese pottery. "'Tis their furniture,' said Frederick to himself, and his suspicions were confirmed by the doorkeeper. As for the person who had given instructions for the sale, he could get no information on that head. But perhaps the auctioneer, Maitre Bourdemont, might be able to throw light on the subject. The functionary did not at first want to tell what creditor was having the sale carried out. Frederick pressed him on the point. It was a gentleman named Senecal, an agent, and Maitre Bourdemont, 
even carried his politeness so far as to lend his newspaper, the Petit Affiches, to Frederick. The latter, on reaching Rosinette's house, flung down this paper on the table, spread wide open. Read that! Well, what? said she with a face so calm that it roused up in him a feeling of revolt. Ah, keep up that air of innocence! I don't understand what you mean. "'Tis you who are selling up Madame Arnaud yourself. She read over the announcement again. Where is her name? Gull, oh, tis her furniture. You know that as well as I do. What does that signify to me? said Rosinette, shrugging her shoulders. What does it signify to you? But you are taking your revenge, that's all. This is the consequence of your persecutions. Haven't you outraged her so far as to call at her house? You, a worthless creature, and this is the most saintly, the most charming, the best woman that ever lived. Why did you set your heart on ruining her? I assure you, you are mistaken. Come now, as if you had not put Senecal forward to do this. What nonsense! Then he carried away with rage. You lie, you lie, you wretch! You are jealous of her. You have got the judgments against her husband. Senecal is already mixed up in your affairs. He detests Arnaud, and your two hatreds have entered into a combination with one another. I saw how delighted he was when you won that action of yours about the Kowlin shares. Are you going to deny this? I give you my what? Oh, I know what that's worth, your word. And Frederick reminded her of her lovers, giving their names and circumstantial details. Rosinette drew back, all of the color fading from her face. You are astonished at this. You thought I was blind because I shut my eyes. Now I have had enough of it. We do not die through the treacheries of a woman of your sort. When they become too monstrous, we get out of the way. To inflict punishment on account of them would be only to degrade oneself. She twisted her arms about. My God, who can it be that has changed him? Nobody but yourself. And all this for Madame Arnaud, exclaimed Rosinette, weeping. He replied coldly. I have never loved any woman but her. At this insult, her tears ceased to flow. That shows your good taste. A woman of mature years, with a complexion like licorice, a thick waist, big eyes like the ventos of a cellar, and just as empty. As you like her so much, go and join her. This is just what I expected. Thank you. Rosanette remained motionless, stupefied by this extraordinary behavior. She even allowed the door to be shut. Then, with a bound, she pulled him back into the ante-room and flinging her arms around him. Why, you are mad! You are mad! This is absurd! I love you! Then she changed her tone to one of entreaty. Good heavens! For the sake of our dead infant! Confess that it was you who did this trick, said Frederick. She still protested that she was innocent. You will not acknowledge it? No! Well then, farewell and forever. Listen to me. Frederick turned round. If you understood me better, you would know that my decision is irrevocable. Oh, oh, you will come back to me again. Never, as long as I live. And he slammed the door behind him violently. Rosanette wrote to Deslauriers, saying that she wanted to see him at once. He called one evening, about five days later, and when she told him about the rupture, that's all, a nice piece of bad luck. She thought at first that he would have been able to bring back Frederick, but now all was lost. 
she ascertained through the doorkeeper that he was about to be married to Madame d'Ambreuse. De Laurier gave her a lecture and showed himself an exceedingly gay fellow, quite a jolly dog, and, as it was very late, asked permission to pass the night in an armchair. Then, next morning, he set out again for Nogent, informing her that he was unable to say when they would meet once more. In a little while, there would perhaps be a great change in his life. Two hours after his return, the town was in a state of revolution. The news went round that Monsieur Frederick was going to marry Madame d'Ambreuse. At length, the three Mademoiselles Auguet, unable to stand it any longer, made their way to the house of Madame Moreau, who, with an air of pride, confirmed this intelligence. Pierrot became quite ill when he heard it. Louise locked herself up. It was even rumored that she had gone mad. Meanwhile, Frederick was unable to hide his dejection. Madame d'Ambreuse, in order to divert his mind, no doubt, from gloomy thoughts, redoubled her attentions. Every afternoon they went out for a drive in her carriage, and, on one occasion, as they were passing along the Place de la Bourse, she took the idea into her head to pay a visit to the public auction rooms for the sake of amusement. It was the first of December, the very day on which the sale of Madame Arnaud's furniture was to take place. He remembered the date and manifested his repugnance, declaring that this place was intolerable on account of the crush and the noise. She only wanted to get a peep at it. The brougham drew up. He had no alternative but to accompany her. In the open space could be seen wash-hand stands without basins, the wooden portions of armchairs, old hampers, pieces of porcelain, empty bottles, mattresses, and men in blouses or in dirty frock coats, all gray with dust, and mean-looking faces. Some with canvas sacks over their shoulders were chatting in separate groups or hailing each other in a disorderly fashion. Frederick urged that it was inconvenient to go any further. Pooh! And they ascended the stairs. In the first room at the right, gentlemen with catalogues in their hands were examining pictures. In another, a collection of Chinese weapons were being sold. Madame d'Ambreuse wanted to go down again. She looked at the numbers over the doors, and she led him to the end of the corridor towards an apartment which was blocked up with people. He immediately recognized the two whatnots belonging to the office of L'Arts Industrielle, her work table, all her furniture. Heaped up at the end of the room according to their respective heights, they formed a long slope from the floor to the windows, and at the other sides of the apartment, the carpets and the curtains hung down straight along the walls. There were underneath steps occupied by old men who had fallen asleep. At the left rose a sort of counter, at which the auctioneer, in a white cravat, was slightly swinging a little hammer. By his side a young man was writing, and below him stood a sturdy fellow, between a commercial traveller and a vendor of countermarks, crying out, Furniture for sale! Three attendants placed the articles on a table, at the sides of which sat in a row second-hand dealers and old-clothes women. The general public at the auction kept walking in a circle behind them. When Frederick came in, the petticoats, the neckerchiefs, and even the chemises were being passed on from hand to hand and then given back. Sometimes they were flung some distance, and suddenly strips of whiteness went flying through the air. After that her gowns were sold, and then one of her hats, the broken feather of which was hanging down, then her furs, 
and then three pairs of boots, and the disposal by sale of these relics, wherein he could trace in a confused sort of way the very outlines of her form, appeared to him an atrocity, as if he had seen carrion crows mangling her corpse. The atmosphere of the room, heavy with so many breaths, made him feel sick. Madame d'Ambreuse offered him her smelling bottle. She said that she found all this highly amusing. The bedroom furniture was now exhibited. Maitre Bethemalt named a price. The crier immediately repeated it in a louder voice, and the three auctioneers' assistants quietly waited for the stroke of the hammer, and then carried off the articles sold to an adjoining apartment. In this way disappeared, one after the other, the large blue carpet spangled with camellias, which her dainty feet used to touch so lightly as she advanced to meet him, the little upholstered easy-chair, in which he used to sit facing her when they were alone together, the two screens belonging to the mantelpiece, the ivory of which had been rendered smoother by the touch of her hands, and a velvet pincushion, which was still bristling with pins. It was as if portions of his heart had been carried away with these things, and the monotony of the same voices and the same gestures benumbed him with fatigue, and caused within him a mournful torpor, a sensation like that of death itself. There was a rustle of silk close to his ear. Rosanette touched him. It was through Frederick himself that she had learned about this auction. When her first feelings of vexation was over, the idea of deriving profit from it occurred to her mind. She had come to see it in a white satin vest with pearl buttons, a furbelowed gown, tight-fitting gloves on her hands, and a look of triumph on her face. He grew pale with anger. She stared at the woman who was by his side. Madame d'Ambreuse had recognized her, and for a minute they examined each other from head to foot minutely, in order to discover the defect, the blemish, the one perhaps envying the other's youth, and the other filled with spite at the extreme good form, the aristocratic simplicity of her rival. At last, Madame d'Ambreuse turned her head round with a smile of inexpressible insolence. The crier had opened a piano, her piano, while he remained standing before it, he ran the fingers of his right hand over the keys and put the instrument at twelve hundred francs. Then he brought down the figures to one thousand, then to eight hundred, and finally to seven hundred. Madame d'Ambreuse, in a playful tone, laughed at the appearance of some socket that was out of gear. The next thing placed before the second-hand dealers was a little chest with medallions and silver corners and clasps the same one which he had seen at the first dinner in the Rue des Choiseaux, which had subsequently been in Rosanette's house, and again transferred back to Madame Arnaud's residence. Often, during their conversations, his eyes wandered towards it. He was bound to it by the dearest memories, and his soul was melting with tender emotions about it, when suddenly Madame d'Ambreuse said, "'Look here, I am going to buy that.' "'But it is not a very rare article,' he returned." She considered it, on the contrary, very pretty, and the appraiser commended its delicacy. A gem of the Renaissance. Eight hundred francs, messieurs, almost entirely of silver. With a little whiting it can be made to shine brilliantly. And, as she was pushing forward through the crush of people, "'What an odd idea,' said Frederick. "'You are annoyed at this.' "'No, but what can be done with a fancy article of that sort?' "'Who knows? Love letters might be kept in it, perhaps.' She gave him a look which made the illusion very clear. A reason the more for not robbing the dead of their secrets. I did not imagine she was dead. 
and then in a loud voice she went on to bid, eight hundred and eighty francs. "'What you are doing is not right,' murmured Frederick. She began to laugh. "'But this is the first favour, dear, that I am asking from you. "'Come now, doesn't it strike you that at this rate you won't be a very considerate husband?' Someone had just at that moment made a higher bid. Nine hundred francs! Nine hundred francs!' repeated Maitre Berthemolt. Nine hundred and ten, fifteen, twenty, thirty, squeaked the auctioneer's crier, with jerky shakes of his head, as he cast a sweeping glance at those assembled around him. "'Show me that I am going to have a wife who is amenable to reason,' said Frederick. And he gently drew her towards the door. The auctioneer proceeded. "'Come, come, messieurs, nine hundred and thirty. Is there any bidder at nine hundred and thirty? Madame d'Ambreuse just as she had reached the door, stopped, and raising her voice to a high pitch, "'One thousand francs!' There was a thrill of astonishment, and then a dead silence. "'A thousand francs, messieurs, a thousand francs! Is nobody advancing on this bid? Is that clear? Very well, then. One thousand francs. Going. Gone!' And down came the ivory hammer. She passed in her card, and the little chest was handed over to her. She thrust it into her muff. Frederick felt a great chill penetrating his heart. Madame d'Ambreuse had not let go of her hold of his arm, and she had not the courage to look up at his face in the street where her carriage was awaiting her. She flung herself into it, like a thief flying away after a robbery, and then turned towards Frederick. He had his hat in his hand. "'Are you not going to come in?' "'No, madame.' and bowing to her frigidly, he shut the carriage door, and then made a sign to the coachman to drive away. The first feeling that he experienced was one of joy at having regained his independence. He was filled with pride at the thought that he had avenged Madame Arnaud by sacrificing a fortune to her. Then he was amazed at his own act, and he felt doubled up with extreme physical exhaustion. Next morning his manservant brought him the news. The city had been declared to be in a state of siege, the assembly had been dissolved, and a number of the representatives of the people had been imprisoned at Mazas. Public affairs had assumed to his mind an utterly unimportant aspect, so deeply preoccupied was he by his private troubles. He wrote to several tradesmen, countermanding various orders which he had given for the purchase of articles in connection with his projected marriage, which now appeared to him in the light of a rather mean speculation and he execrated Madame d'Ambreuse, because, owing to her, he had been very near perpetrating a vile action. He had forgotten the Maréchal, and did not even bother himself about Madame Arnaud, absorbed only in one thought. Lost amid the wreck of his dreams, sick at heart, full of grief and disappointment, and, in his hatred of the artificial atmosphere wherein he had suffered so much, he longed for the freshness of green fields, the repose of provincial life, a sleeping existence spent beneath his natal roof in the mist of ingenuous hearts. At last, when Wednesday evening arrived, he made his way out into the open air. On the boulevard numerous groups had taken up their stand. From time to time a patrol came and dispersed them. They gathered together again in regular order behind it. They talked freely and in loud tones, made chafing remarks about the soldiers without anything further happening. 
What, are they not going to fight? said Frederick to a workman. They're not such fools as to get themselves killed for the well-off people. Let them take care of themselves. And a gentleman muttered, as he glanced across at the inhabitants of the Faubourgs, Socialist rascals, if it were only possible this time to exterminate them. Frederick could not, for the life of him, understand the necessity of so much rancor and vituperative language. His feeling of disgust against Paris was intensified by these occurrences, and two days later he set out for Nogent by the first train. The houses soon became lost to view. The country stretched out before his gaze. Alone in his carriage, with his feet on the seat in front of him, he pondered over the events of the last few days, and then on his entire past. The recollection of Louise came back to his mind. She, indeed, loved me truly. I was wrong not to snatch at this chance of happiness. Pooh, let us not think any more about it. Then five minutes afterwards, who knows, after all, why not later? His reverie, like his eyes, wandered afar through vague horizons. She was artless, a peasant girl, almost a savage, but so good. In proportion, as he drew nearer to Nogent, her image drew closer to him. As they were passing through the meadows of Sordon, he saw her once more in imagination under the poplar trees, as in the old days, cutting rushes on the edges of the pools. And now they had reached the destination. He stepped out of the train. Then he leaned with his elbows on the bridge to gaze again at the aisle and the garden where they had walked together one sunshiny day, in the dizzy sensation caused by traveling, together with the weakness engendered by his recent emotions, arousing in his breast a sort of exaltation, he said to himself, She has gone out, perhaps. Suppose I were to go and meet her. The bell of Saint Laurent was ringing, and in the square in front of the church there was a crowd of poor people around an open carriage the only one in the district, the one which was always hired for weddings. And all of a sudden, under the church gate, accompanied by a number of well-dressed persons in white cravats, a newly married couple appeared. He thought he must be laboring under some hallucination. But no, it was, indeed, Louise, covered with a white veil which flowed from her red hair down to her heels, and with her was no other than de Laurier, attired in a blue coat embroidered with silver, the costume of a prefect. How was this? Frederick concealed himself at the corner of a house to let the procession pass. Shamefaced, vanquished, crushed, he retraced his steps to the railway station and returned to Paris. The cabman who drove him assured him that the barricades were erected from the Chateau de Eux to the Gymnase and turned down the Faubourg Saint-Martin. At the corner of the Rue de Provence, Frederick stepped out in order to reach the boulevards. It was five o'clock. A thin shower was falling. A number of citizens blocked up the footpath close to the opera house. The houses opposite were closed. No one at any of the windows. All along the boulevard, dragoons were galloping behind a row of wagons, leaning with drawn swords over their horses, and the plumes of their helmets and their large white cloaks rising up behind them could be seen under the glare of the gas lamps, which shook the wind in the mist of a haze. The crowd gazed at them, mute with fear. In the intervals between the cavalry charges, squads of policemen arrived on the scene to keep back the people in the streets. But on the steps of Tortoni, a man, Dussadier, who could be distinguished at a distance by his great height, remained standing as motionless as a caryatid. 
one of the police officers marching at the head of his men with his three-cornered hat drawn over his eyes threatened him with his sword the other thereupon took one step forward and shouted long live the republic the next moment he fell on his back with his arms crossed a yell of horror arose from the crowd the police officer with a look of command made a circle around him and frederick gazing at him in open-mouthed astonishment recognized senecal End of chapter 18